It's nice to be with you again this morning and continuing our series on the end times, end times in the Old Testament, no less. Today's sermon, the topic of the sermon, is very personal. It's a sin that I struggle with on a regular basis. It's something that I need reminded of on a regular basis. And so as I get to prepare this sermon for you, I get to remember myself and my own sin and the problems in my own life. And I get to confess it again and again and again. And I pray that as we work through the text for the morning, that you also would reflect upon your sin and how Jesus did pay it all. He paid for that sin. Let us walk in newness of life. This is a series on the uh, end times. And, um, and Isaiah 13 and 14 is a passage on the end times. Personally, I grew up just in upstate New York. I was just a regular kid. My dad owns a small business. It's called Little's Lawn Equipment. He's still the owner of it. I worked for my dad. So I have a little bit of a small business background, you might say. I uh, sensed that the Lord was leading me into the ministry, and so I enrolled at the local Bible college in central New York. It's called Practical Bible College. It's now called Davis College. It was where my pastor went to school, my uncles went to school, and I graduated from there in three years, and I was 20 years old, and I was like, I am nowhere near ready to be a pastor. And so I talked to David Little. He was my uncle. He was the president of Baptist Church Planners at the time, and I said, hey, where should I go to school? And he had one recommendation for me, Faith Baptist Bible College. That's where you want to go. And so I'm like, well, I don't really know of any other school. So I went to Faith. It was out in Iowa in Des Moines. I was a typical Northeasterner and didn't know how to pronounce it and didn't even know where it was on the map. Probably would get Idaho and Iowa mixed up. Uh, you know, the same stuff that I get to deal with now. I came here in 2001 as a student. And it was at Faith Baptist Bible College, well, Faith Baptist Theological Seminary, that I really learned my theology. My best friend growing up went to Wheaton uh, in the Chicago land, and uh, I noticed at that time that he was changing his theology. The specific theology that he was starting to change was his eschatology. Uh, we both grew up premillennial dispensationalists, and uh, he went out to Wheaton, and he was influenced by an amillennial professor. So uh, eschatology is something that's near and dear to my heart. It's something that I believe is important. My friend didn't think it was important. And it was kind of interesting because several years later, their church, it was a little bit broader, and you could be premillennial or amillennial or whatever. And he was teaching, my best friend, he was teaching a class on, I think it was Isaiah or Jeremiah. It was one of the Old Testament prophets. And they had a visiting missionary or somebody come in, and the guy was premillennial. And he taught his class. And it drove my friend absolutely bonkers. <laughs> Because it affects so much of the Old Testament. It really does. And as I grew in knowledge and grew in the understanding of God's word, there's this pro problem, this little sin that just kind of starts creeping in on you. It's called pride. The Apostle Paul warns of this sin. Knowledge puffs up. 1 Corinthians 8.1 But as my life started to take a turn towards academics, more and more knowledge is required. And so this sin of pride becomes an even bigger and bigger issue. 
I continued my education. I went to um, Central Baptist Theological Seminary and uh, got my Master of Theology degree. And then I enrolled at Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit. It's now called Clark Summit University. And I uh, finally finished school last year. I've officially graduated. <laughs> so after many, many years... So as I've gone through this educational process, what I've learned is not only my own sinfulness and this struggle of pride that I have to battle on a regular basis, um, but also it's a sin that I have to warn and I get the privilege of warning students of. Because what are they doing? They're learning and they're growing. They're being equipped for the work of the ministry. And those tools that they're getting are really important. They are. But at the same time, we have to be constantly reminded of who we are. We're just man. And just, you know, God can use you or he'll use somebody else. And you want to you make yourself unusable to God? Be proud. Because God doesn't share his glory with anybody. And if you want to be used by God, you have to be humble. You have to be humble. And so as we look at the proudest man who ever lives this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at the Antichrist. I believe the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 is actually the Antichrist. And I do believe he is the most arrogant man who will ever walk this planet. He has not yet shown his face. We don't know who the Antichrist is, but he serves as an example to us. He serves as an example to me, and he serves as an example to you. Let's not be proud. God humbles the proud. First, we're just going to read through the text. I'm going to actually get a little bit of context to our text this morning. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 1, and we'll start just by reading the first 11 verses. If you could follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Verse 3. And it will be when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve... You will take up this taunt or proverb against the king of Babylon. And here is the taunt, the proverb. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Verse 9, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp 
is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use your word in our lives this morning. Help us to recognize our state as man. Our future is the grave, unless you return. We look forward to your return, Lord, recognizing that should you tarry, that we will one day be in that grave, just like the many who have gone before us. Help us to keep you on the throne of our lives. May we be humble and usable in your hands, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God humbles the proud. I want to talk to you a little bit about a couple of things as we introduce the, as we begin the uh, sermon this morning. First, I want to talk about the structure of this passage a little bit. I do want to explain it to you. I mentioned last week that we have a transition in Isaiah 14 and verse 3. And it will be when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil. Okay, that's the setting up of this passage, our passage this morning, the taunt. That rest, that's an idea that's talked about just in the previous few verses. Look at Isaiah 14 and verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. The word that's used there is rest. You know, rest is a very interesting theological concept. We in our culture have so much plenty that we can actually enjoy a lot of rest. But we'll never be at rest like this is at rest. Because in this day, the Lord Jesus has returned. He set up his kingdom. There's no more turmoil. There's no more uh, forces that could attack you or any of that. You're truly at peace, truly at rest with complete confidence and trust in the Lord. This rest that's referred to in Isaiah 14, 1 and 2 has to be an end times eschatological rest. This, did not get, this was not fulfilled in the days when... Um, Nehemiah and Ezra and the captives returned from Babylon in 539 BC. It couldn't have. If you read through those historical accounts, was there rest? Absolutely not. There were the, the Samaritans to the north of them. They were antagonizing them. There was all kinds of problems going on historically. This is a future time when the nation of Israel will be regathered again into the land of Israel. And the king, the true king of kings, the king of kings will rule and, and reign from Jerusalem over his chosen people, the nation of Israel. That is the setting of our passage here this morning. This idea of rest occurs in Isaiah 14, 1 and Isaiah 14 and verse 3. This sets up the proverb, the taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, this whole word, this taunt, it's kind of like a taunt. You can kind of read it that way. The word that's used there is actually the word proverb. And it's the word proverb that's used for the book of Proverbs. It's a proverb. And that's what I love about this passage is because it explains to you how to apply it to your life. What is a proverb? When you think of proverbs, you should think of a comparison. I love studying the book of Proverbs. I love walking people through the book of Proverbs because they look so simple on the outside. But when you start digging in there, it's just like, wow, there's so much more there. 
Think about the very nature of, the, of a proverb. If I speak to my son, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now, if my son heard that, what would he do? What would have to happen? I have four sons, by the way, so I've never quoted this proverb to them, but we don't live out in the farm or anything either, so <laughs> he would have to think. This is an interesting discussion, but as we work through Isaiah 14, you know what you need to do? You need to think. Many times as a teacher, and this is, I am a teacher, I'm an educator, I teach people Hebrew, we, we're working through the book of Ruth right now, and I think it's more valuable for me to teach them how to think better than to actually give them the answers. The Hebrew prophets wrote that way. Do you ever, going through like a Bible reading schedule or something, and you get to the, you know, Isaiah even, okay, or Jeremiah, and you're just like, ugh. You know, it's kind of like, what in the world's going on here? Hey, you aren't the only one. You know, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's traveling on the road. And, and he's like, man, how do I understand this unless somebody's here to explain it to me? It's tough stuff. It is. What do you need to do? You need to study it. You need to slow down. You need to think about it. When I read through the book of, when I, when I, when I work through the book of Isaiah, I'll use Isaiah as an illustration, Okay. I'll not just read through it. I might read like through three or four chapters. And then the next day, you know what I read through? Those same three or four chapters. <laughs> and again, I might do it two or three times. Because it's like, I got to find stuff. I got to see stuff. And you have to read it again and again and again. The prophets, and particularly poetry and the Proverbs, they were written to make you think. And as we work through the passage today, I really want you to think. I want you to engage your mind and think through uh, Isaiah 14 and this text. The specific comparison here is quite clear. Don't be like this guy. He's bad. Don't be proud like him. All right, let's get into our text for this morning. The first point of the sermon is that God stops the proud. God stops the proud. And that's an interesting concept just to think. It's very simple. But what does God do when he intervenes here in Isaiah 14, 4b? He says, you're done. He breaks his staff. You're, you have no rule. You have no authority anymore. He ends it. Let's take a look at Isaiah 14, 4b. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. The staff is a symbol of power, authority. It's broken. They don't have any anymore. Well, the king of Babylon doesn't have any anymore. He's broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. Look at how the rulers are described in the text. They are wicked, sinful rulers. God hates wickedness. We're going to see this again and again and again. Now, I want to talk about this idea of oppression. Because you know what one of the characteristics of proud people, one of the characteristics is that they're proud or that they're oppressive. And this is an area where I've had to examine in my own life. Now, I'm not some, you know, person of great importance that manages 100 people or whatever else, but God has placed me in authority over certain people. I have a wife. I have five children. Am I a proud individual? Does that pride 
flow out of the way I treat the ones who are under my authority? Do you rule your household oppressively? Mothers, how do you treat your children? Are you oppressive? There's a place for law, okay? <laughs> we have five kids. We understand how that works, all right? But there's also a place for grace, and there's a time for mercy. Just as, just as the Lord has been gracious and merciful to us, we should be gracious and merciful to those who are under our authority. I also manage the bookstore at Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. I don't have a lot of employees under me, but well, I guess I should count. I think I have five, five employees that are under me. How do I manage them? If I'm having a bad day, are they having a bad day? If they are having a bad day, how should I be the manager of them? Now, I recognize that not everybody here probably has somebody under authority of, uh, under, below them that, are, that they have authority over. But the people that you do have authority over, how do you treat them? Are you a proud individual? Are you oppressive? Maybe you should talk to your wife or talk to your children. You know, the kids, especially if they're younger, they might not understand. So, of course, Dad, you're really oppressive, you know. You don't give me candy every time I ask for it. But, and that's understanding what true biblical love is. True biblical love doesn't give them candy all the time. And my kids are over there smiling. So, But God stops the proud. That's what he does. And, and one way in which I believe this applies to our lives is that we need to analyze our lives and make sure that we're not oppressive to those who are under our authority. I need to keep moving here. We continue in this text. What do we have in verses 7 and 8? We get this speaking, okay? It's like this guy dies, all right? He's, he's, his his uh, authority is broken. And it's like all of the earth in verse 7. It just is quiet. And then all of a sudden, look at what the text does. They break forth into singing. They're all excited. Because this guy that oppressed them, he beat them. He beat the nations. By the way, that's an interesting word that's included. Nations. He had authority over nations. He was a great, great ruler. And he's now gone. And everybody's rejoicing. Not just the people. Look at what we have in verse 8. Even the trees are excited about this. Look at this. The cypresses rejoiced. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid down. That's a little play on words because guess what the king of Babylon does. He goes to the tree and he lays the trees down. All right? And now here, the king of Babylon, he's the one that's laid down. God has laid him down and nobody's coming up to cut us. The trees are speaking. Now that's called a figure of speech. It's called personification. There are no ents here, all right? This is personification, and it's like nat nature is rejoicing over the fall of this guy. But not only do the trees speak, we get some more speaking. You know, things get really crazy in verses 9 through 11. Look at this. Sheol... Okay, that's the grave. That's where we all are going to go unless the Lord Jesus returns before we die. The grave, it's stirred up to meet you. Now, Sheol's the one doing the action here, but Sheol's the grave. What do we have? This is a figure of speech again. This is personification. 
Okay, we don't go to Isaiah 14, 9 through 11 to learn about the afterlife. Are, are you following me here? Th this didn't really happen. He's using this as a, as a literary device to illustrate the greatness of the king and to, and to illustrate his downfall and how he was some great, big, important person and now he's sleeping on, sleeping on maggots. Gross. Okay, verse 9. Let's look at this. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. Sheol is rousing the shades. These are really important people. All who were leaders of the earth. Okay, do you see this? These leaders are being roused up by Sheol. All who were the kings of the nations. This king is such a big, important king that Sheol's waking everybody up because he's died now too and he's coming into the grave. And then these shades, these kings of the nations, they speak in the grave. Remember, this is personification. Verse 10, all of them who will answer and say to you, like, you too have become as weak as we. Look at that. They're, they're mocking him. You're just as weak as we are. Your pomp, it's brought down. Your arrogance, that's that pride, is brought down to the grave. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. It's disgusting. The most powerful man on earth. This is what happens to him. The most powerful man who ever lives on this earth, that's his future. And they will mock him in the millennial kingdom with these words. He's become like us. That's who you are. Let us continue. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 21, we have God chopping down the false gods. God cuts down the false gods in 12 through 23, 12 through 23. Verse 12, I'm going to just read through the text first. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations, they lie in glory each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the sl slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you've destroyed your land. You've slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog 
and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. God cuts down false gods. In Isaiah 14, 12, we have a person. This person is described as the day star. Some of your translations may name him Lucifer. This is commonly referred to or believed to be a reference to Satan. The son of the dawn, the son of the morning star. This is a reference to the planet Venus. And especially in the Middle East, as, got to get up early for this. Well, it doesn't work so well here in Iowa, I've noticed. The stars in their stuff's a little bit different. But anyway, um, in the early, early morning, there's a really bright star in the morning. It's Venus. And guess what happens? As the sun comes up, that really, really bright star disappears. Because by the glory of the sun, that bright, bright star that looks so magnificent, so powerful amongst the dark sky, it's nothing compared to the sun. And that's the shining one. That is the sun of the dawn. The, the, uh, Isaiah uses this illustration of the heavenly bodies and he explains how, how this son of the dawn, this mightiest king of earthly kings, the greatest king that ever rules on earth, while he looks so splendid and majestic and powerful against that night sky, when compared with the true God of king of kings and lord of lords, he's nothing. And what happens to this king? <sighs> Chops him down and he falls to the ground. He's nothing. How you are cut down to the ground. Look at how great this king is. He says, you who laid the nations low. That word, that word that's used there refers to defeating the nations. You can look it up in Exodus 17, 13. Joshua defeated the Amalekites. And that's the idea here. And that's why I believe this is actually a re reference to the king of earthly kings. It's the reference to the Antichrist, not to Satan. Satan empowers the Antichrist. But who is the one that receives the ramifications of, of the, the sin. It's the Antichrist himself. When you think through the sin in the Garden of Eden, what did you have? You had a serpent. And how do you know that that serpent is Satan? It doesn't say it in Genesis. You actually learn it in Revelation chapter 12. That's where we learn that it was Satan. But what is punished in the Garden of Eden? The serpent. So also, who is punished at the end of times? The king of Babylon, the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the one who does the actions in Isaiah 14, 12, and 12 through 14. He's the one that states the I am statements. He is the one who conquers the nations. He is the king of earthly kings. He does many, many things. Let's look at these I will statements. What does he assert here in Isaiah 14, 13, and 14? You said in your heart. By the way, that's a really important phrase. This is what he's thinking. And that's also where it gets to us and how we apply this text to ourselves. But let's explain the text first. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. Look at this guy. Such arrogance. Above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. Look at this guy. He's like, man, I'm going all the way up there. 
Now there's two words, and then the final one, of course, is the most climactic. I will be like the most high. Such arrogance. And that's why people read that arrogance and it's like, man, how could a man actually make such assertions to such grandiose things? But actually in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, it speaks of the man of sin, the Antichrist. And what does he do? He sets himself up as God. He really thinks he is God. Well, you know... <laughs> We're getting into some more details of eschatology, but if you rose from the dead, then you might think you're God too. So he has a few things going for him, personally indwelt by the devil himself and uh, conquering the nations through the power of, of Satan himself. This is quite the guy, and he makes quite the assertions. Just as he asserts to be, to ascend to the heavens, and just as he asserts to um, sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. Look at the text. Look at verses 15 and 16 that follow. But you are brought down. You see that? The contrast. The king of earthly kings says, I'm going to ascend up there. But guess what God does? No, I'm going to take you down. And where does he take him down to? To Sheol, to the grave. I will kill you. And you'll stay dead. Actually, it's a kind of an interesting thing we're going to talk about. He doesn't stay dead, but we'll save that for a little bit later. There's some really interesting eschatology here. We learn a ton about the Antichrist in this passage. He says, I'm going to go up. God's like, nope, you're going down. You think you're going to go to the far reaches of the north? Look at what it says in verse 15. You're brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. And the pit is a correspondence to the grave. I'm going to kill you. You're going to be done. In fact, when this is uh, declared in the millennial kingdom, he is already dead. He is already done. So the one who asserts to ascend and the one who asserts to be in the far reaches of the north is the same one that has to come down. Many people who want this to believe that it's Satan, they have to make a distinction and say verses 15 and 16 refer to the king of Babylon and verses 13 and 14 refer to Satan. But that doesn't work well because the ramifications of this is the same person. It's the same person. Okay, so you can disagree with me on that. I'm getting into a little bit of theology there, but I think it's kind of fun. And I think it really shows the arrogance of this man, the pride within him, the, the devil indwelling him, his resurrection and then this, this empowerment to conquer the nations. He is the king of earthly kings. The proudest man to ever live. And what does God do to him? Whoosh. And if you assert yourself as a god, guess what God's going to do to you? Whoosh. Chop you down too. Let's take a look at this text and uh, apply it to our lives. What do we have? God cuts down the false gods. We have the arrogant thoughts in verses 13 to 14 that we just looked at. And then you have the brutal reality in verses 15 through 17. We've already looked at verse 15. Let's look at 16 and 17. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. And then we learn some more things about the Antichrist. Look at verse 15, or 16 and 17. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? See this? The Antichrist, he's like, man, people are just scared of him. He shook kingdoms. 
Now those words, tremble and shaking, we saw those before. They were in Isaiah 13 and verse 13. When the, ki- the true king of kings and lord of lords returns, what does he do in verse 13? I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. This guy is such a counterfeit of the true Messiah. And there's all kinds of interesting parallels here. It's just fascinating. So as he shakes the earth and shakes kingdoms, as he tries to imitate God, What does he do in verse 17? He made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities who did not let his prisoners go home. That last phrase is the most ambiguous. What's so bad about not letting prisoners go home? You know, the two lines before it is making the world a desert. That sounds pretty bad. And this whole thing about destroying cities. Yeah, that seems really, really bad too. But what's up with not letting prisoners go home? I believe that he's actually going to lead a worldwide imprisonment of the Jewish people. It's the world. It's not just the king of Babylon and his dominion. It's the entire world. And who are the prisoners in Isaiah 14, 1 through 3? It's the children of Israel. They are part of it. I don't think they're the only prisoners, but they are some of the prisoners. This is the brutal reality, and this is the way sin works. What do you think about? How do you dream? You know, I love dreaming. It's great. Because then whatever I want actually happens. Here's the problem with dreaming. You wake up. (laughs) And then guess what you have to face? The brutal reality. The brutal reality that you're not a god. Have you ever thought about that? Dreaming and fantasizing is a wicked sin. Because what are you doing? You're saying, I'm God. Because you are. You're the God of your fantasy. You're the God of that dream. What did the Antichrist do? He said in his heart. What do you say in your heart? What do you think about I remember when I was a kid, of course, it was winning the Super Bowl or something like that. I liked football. And, of course, I didn't have the discernment. But, man, it's so easy to win the Super Bowl and make that best play and be the MVP. In my dreams, then you wake up. What do you think about? Are you proud? This is the area that's the battlefield in my mind on a regular basis. Knowledge puffs up. Wake up, Timmy. You're just God's tool. And if you ever think you're more than that, God can't use you. Pride is a wicked sin. It, 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 it affects us all, each and every one of you. Some of the most introverted people who seem very unassuming, what do they do? They fantasize, and they become a god of their own world. It's time to wake up, Christian. Slay the sin of pride in your mind and live in the real world. Walk in newness of life. I'm taking too much time. We have to move quicker. Eternal humility. There are so many fascinating details about the king of Babylon here in this passage. Uh, In uh, verse 18, we have the tombs and the kings of the nations. They're each in their tomb. Okay, they get buried. But what does it say about the king of Babylon? Look at verse 19. You are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch. A branch, okay? Who is the branch of the stump of Jesse? 
All right? That's Jesus. This guy's the fake one. And he's the loathed branch. He's the loathed branch. And he doesn't get buried. So it says back in Isaiah 14, verse 11, that he's got the, the, the bed of worms and the, and the covers, the maggots and all of that. But here, he's actually not buried. He's actually, I believe, resurrected again by the Lord Jesus, if he even dies, really, in that last battle. I'm not exactly sure. But it says in Revelation 19 that he is thrown into the lake of fire. In what state? Alive. That is the future fate of the king of Babylon, the Antichrist. And that's why I believe this is referring to the Antichrist. It corresponds very well to Revelation 19. He does not get a burial like the kings of old. He's clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. It seems like his body is just going to be completely marred and beaten to pieces and look terrible, which is why the people are like, wow, man, this guy was who we were scared of the whole time. Verse 20, you will not be joined with them in burial. He doesn't get a burial. He gets thrown into the lake of fire alive because you've destroyed your land and you've slain your own people. And this is what really distinguishes the king of Babylon from all other earthly kings. He not only destroys other lands and other peoples, he destroys his own land. He destroys his own people. He sacrifices them upon the altar of his arrogance, of his pride. That is the king of Babylon. As a result, what is the states in verse uh, 20 and 21? You should, well, 21, may the offspring of evildoers never be named. Verse 21, prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. His entire posterity is wiped out, as is the posterity, the remnant of Babylon. He doesn't get a grave. He doesn't get any offspring. He doesn't even get a city. And that's what we have in verses 22 and 23. The Lord will sweep Babylon and wipe it out. This 22 and 23 connects it with the Babylon, Babylonian destruction in chapter 13. This is all one big oracle. There's a big list of the king of Babylon that we don't have time for. So we're going to keep going to the last point. And the last point is that God's purpose stands. Isn't this interesting? The king of Babylon, he's like, man, I'm this great guy. I'm going to accomplish all these things. And then God comes back and, and that's the end of him. But whose purpose really does stand? You want to slay the, the sin of pride? Slay it again and again and again and again. What do you need to do? You need to put God on his throne. God's purpose is what stands. God will accomplish what he intends to do. And he illustrates that in verses 24 through 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn. Look at the repetition of the words here. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my, in my land. It's like, what in the world's up with the Assyrian? Man, the Assyrians, I believe, when this prophecy was given... Assyria had encircled Jerusalem, or they were close to encircling Jerusalem. And God's like, you know what? I'm going to prove to you that this oracle is going to happen. Because Judah is completely laid waste by Assyria. And 185,000 Assyrian soldiers have completely encircled Jerusalem, and they're toast. They're never going to make it. And God's like, I'm going to prove to you that I am the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And God wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and delivers Jerusalem. 
than that day. As God purposes, so it shall stand. Friend, brother, believer, pride. Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used by God to be one, make one? Okay, it's a great motto. I love it that your church has for this year. Make a disciple. We're involved in disciple making in our church, in our, in our school. Uh, the students come over and they have, we have a Bible study on Tuesday nights. We are all about disciple making. And you need to be about it too. But you know, if you want to be about disciple making, if you want to really be used by God, guess what you have to do? You've got to get out of the way. Get some equipping. Know how to handle God's word. Offer yourself freely to the Lord. And then you have to let God work. I've had to learn this the hard way. I get in the way way too much because, man, I'm supposed to be really smart. I'm supposed to have all the answers. I don't. All I am is a man. That's it. I'm a person, and that's all you are. Pride is a terrible, ugly sin. Hate it. Confess it. Repent of it. And be used by the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I am a proud sinner. All I am is a speck of dust. I'm a blade of grass. Lord, you're the one that has the sickle. I'm just a little grasshopper here on the ground. You're the great creator and, and sustainer of all things. I'm nothing, Lord. You are everything. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my sin of pride. Use me, I pray. And as I'm sure I'll sin with this sin tomorrow and the next day and the next. Lord, I pray that you would bring this sin to mind and that I would again repent of it and confess it to you. That I would turn to you in true, genuine repentance. And that I would be humble. Equipped for you. Lord, use me. Use these people here in Mount Pleasant. May they be humble, usable by you. Forgive us, Lord, for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.